Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention some names today. Um, one uh, is Bill Rogers. He spent an entire day making a media center uh, for our new arrangement. And do you enjoy your seats this morning, the brand new seats? If, go ahead. If you, sat down, if you sat down this morning in a really hard seat, let me tell you, it's going to get softer. They break in. Now, for those, of you, for those of you who are in the back, it's probably already broken in for you. We're glad you're here. Well, today is our last day on Encounters with Christ. This is the last sermon series on Encounters with Christ. Our next sermon series will be in November. And in November, we'll be studying uh, for three weeks what really happened on the cross. And then when December gets here, we'll move on to a new sermon series, and it will be the parables of Christ starting in December. And I hope that you'll be looking forward to those. And I hope you've enjoyed this sermon series on encounters with Christ. Today, Beautiful Reconciliation is the title. Beautiful reconciliation. If there's one single theme that runs through the Bible, it's reconciliation motivated by love. Amen? Reconciliation. God being reconciled to mankind. And this encounter that we see this morning shows all of that in a little synopsis, in a little short story. Our story can be found in John 8, 1 through 12. So if you would, please take out your devices, your Bibles. Uh, and if you don't have one, there is a Bible in front of you, under the seat in front of you. But I'd like to always encourage you to open your Bibles up and study along with me. I want to make you great students of the Bible. And the way to do that is to open it up and get into it and study it. And always feel free. If I say something you don't agree with or, or, or I say something that, that you'd like to know more about, pull me aside after service, please not off the stage, and talk to me about that. I'd love, I'd love to, to talk about Scripture anytime. Well, I feel like I need to give you a little bit of backstory on, on this, on this uh, story. Uh, in 37 of 7, Jesus makes this claim. He says, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as Scripture says, from this innermost being will flow the rivers of the living water. Christ has been declaring that he is the source of eternal life. And can I tell you, that made a lot of people happy and that made a lot of religious leaders of the day very upset. And at the end of this story, Christ declares that he is the light of life. And so most of our manuscripts place this little story in between those two declarations of Christ declaring that he is the Messiah. Let's read together. But Jesus went on the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her at the center of the court. And they said to him, 
teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But they persisted in asking him. So he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they had heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus says to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let's break this story down into sections and talk about it for just a moment. First, I want to point out, Jesus went to church. It's become very popular in today's society to say, well, I'm a Christian, and I follow Christ, and I try to emulate Christ, but I don't really get involved with organized religion. I don't go to church. Can I tell you, I want to look at those people and gently hold their hands and say, have you read the Bible? Because Jesus is constantly going to church. Matter of fact, it took me less than 10 minutes to find these eight verses where Jesus is either worshiping in, teaching in the temple or the synagogue. Because that's what being part of a church is. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's being in a fabric of community where we love and keep each one another close to God. Amen? Now, also I want to point out, Jesus is, is, is taking part of an early morning Bible study. They probably called it a small group Bible study. That's a lead-in. Tonight, we're having small group Bible studies in our homes. And if you don't participate in that, please see an elder, myself or Jacob, uh, and get involved in a small group Bible study. Anyone here hate a bully attitude? Just, if you do, just raise your hand. Do you hate a bully attitude? Yeah. Can I tell you that this scripture burns me up? When I read it, these scribes and these Pharisees are everything most of us despise about organized religiosity. They come dragging this woman aside into the middle of the court, in the middle of a Bible study, like a cow to slaughter. They don't care anything about her. They're just using her to trap Christ. They come thinking 
that they're secure in their socio-religious system. This mob of haters, smug in their status, arrogant and prideful in their web of self-made laws and traditions. They are rich and powerful and pompous. They're there to stop this new rabbi called Jesus. They're to put an end to him at the cost of a woman's life. But they've made a fatal mistake. They've sinned in their trap. They've broken the very word of God, the very law, which they confessed arrogantly to know so well. So let's take a look at that law. Deuteronomy 19 and 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. It takes two direct witnesses to convict anyone of anything under Mosaical law. Where are the two witnesses, David? We don't see them in the story. How about Deuteronomy 17 and 6? But never put a person to death on the testimony of one witness. There must always be two or three. If you're going to stone someone, if you're involved in a capital case, you always have to have two witnesses. Again, where are two or three witnesses? How about Deuteronomy 20? and 22 if a man is intimate with a woman who is another man's wife they shall both be put to death the man who lay with the woman and the woman the law says that they both have to be put to death guys can I tell you the first thing a woman sees in this in this story is where's the guy where is he at If you're going to follow the law, Mary, you've got to have a guy and a girl for this. If you're going to follow the law, you're going to have to stone both of them. Deuteronomy 17 and 7. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting the person to death, and then the hands of all the people. In a capital punishment, the prosecuting witness must be the first one to throw the stone. Do you see that? If you're the prosecution's witness, you have to throw the first stone. Obedience to the law of Moses in this instance actually meant letting this woman go. The angry mob is sinning. These lawyers and these scribes They have let their emotions run wild until they're outside of God's law. So now let's take a look at how Christ reacts to the breaking of his father's law. First, and I love this, Jesus doesn't overreact. Can I tell you, I'd been been blowing up. My finger would have been wagging at them. I'd have been telling them about all those scriptures. I'd have pulled out my Babylonian Bible and I'd have been swishing it around until I found 
I was supposed to say iPhone Bible, until I found the scriptures in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. I would have pointed out to them Proverbs 16 and 18 about how pride comes before a fall and made and how they were being arrogant and they were going to get their up and coming. But that's not Christ, is it? To be ugly back is just to be ugly twice. And Christ won't be drawn into that. Christ will not enter into their trap. Christ's behavior here reminds me of a verse that I found on last Wednesday. In our Wednesday night study on love is not easily angered, which I think I made some people mad at, I found the beautiful gem of this verse. A person who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. Soak that up for just a moment. A person who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. When you can't control your temper, when a man who has no control over his, over his self has no defenses, they're accessible to attack on all sides. They get upset at everything. And because they're upset at everything, everyone is controlling them. Situations control them. See, they have no protection. It's like Mama says, no one makes you angry. You choose to get angry. Mm Mm-hmm. Folks, if we're going to be Christ-like, we're going to have to control our tempers. We should be some of the hardest people in the world to make angry. Can I tell you, a lot of times we seem to be the first ones who get angry. And Christ and the Bible is telling us and emulating to us that we ought to be incredibly hard to get angry and to lose our temper. Jesus is just the opposite. He never is out of control. He's always in control. And he's practicing his own words from the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see, Jesus, unlike most of us, when confronted by our enemies, he sees this as an opportunity to teach and extend the love of God. Where we work a lot of times on our counterattack, Jesus works on the testimony of truth. God help us to be more Christ-like in our dealings with other people who are trying to put us in traps and trying to make us angry. Can we stop right there and just pray for a minute? Because I think in our culture, we've got a tremendous problem with this. I know I do. Let's bow. Dear Heavenly Lord, we want to pray for self-control. We want to pray to be the kind of people that are slow to anger. Dear Heavenly Lord, help us to always 
control our tempers and control our tongues. Help us to be people that love our enemies, that treat them well no matter the situation. Dear Heavenly Lord, our culture is full of hot heads and angry people. Help us not to be one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want to bring your attention to Jesus' reply. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He's saying, for you who have no sin, the one who has the ability to rewrite God's law here, which Christ would be the only one, you go ahead and throw the stone. You without any sin, the one who's perfect, you can throw the stone. But when you follow the law, you got to have witnesses here, and the only real witness here is the omniscience of God, right? But what we can't say here, what we should never say here is that Jesus is winking at her sin, or he's not concerned about her sin. We shouldn't say we don't have the right or the responsibility to call sin, sin, because we do have the right and the responsibility to call sin, sin. In the right setting, in love, in patience, in gentleness, we have the right and the responsibility to call sin out. Paul tells the Galatians, brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of church. One more time. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Paul ends that with a little, with a little notation under it. Yeah, it's your responsibility to bring these people back, to restore these people from transgressions. But be careful, because when Keith starts restoring people back, he gets the big head, and next thing you know, pride's got him, and Aaron's arrogance has him, and he's warning against that. How about 2 Timothy? Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort. With what, church? You are so tired. Did the storm keep you up last night? With complete what? Patience and teaching. There is a time to reprove people and rebuke people. And there's a time to exhort people, to praise them, to lift them up, to, to encourage them. But when we're reproving and rebuking, it should always be done with patience. And yes, yes, there is a time and a place when a brother or sister can be so disruptive, and I'm not talking about that beauty, can be so disruptive and divisive in a church that we should shun them. Titus 3.10. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, 
have nothing to do with them. There is a time when people become so divisive, when they become so negative in their spirit and so divisive in the church and say ugly things and put people down and say things that are hurtful and sin and they are divisive. They're causing the church to split apart. They run people off. There is a time to have nothing to do with them. Now, I got to tell you, in the setting in, set in Corinthians 1 and then in Corinthians 2, it tells, you, it tells us when that person's behavior changes, you bring them back into the fold. You treat them like family again when they change their behavior, when they get past their sin problem. But all of that in patience, love, and gentleness. Now Christ finds a gentle, patient, non-divisive way to illuminate the mob's sin. And they get it. One by one, from the oldest to the youngest, most likely because the older are a little more wise, probably because the older are a little more uh, honest in their self-appraisal about their frailties when it comes to sin, they all walk away and leave her alone. Now, I have no idea what he wrote in the sand that day. Maybe he, maybe he wrote their personal sins. Maybe he wrote some names of some partners that they had been with in their immorality. Maybe he wrote down verses from Leviticus and Deuteronomy about how to handle a situation like this properly under the law. Or maybe, maybe he just, Alex doodled in the sand and gave them long enough to think about what they were doing. A church, what Jesus says next is paramount. The response Jesus gives this woman next, well, it's the story of redemption. It's that loving, redemptive story, that beautiful reconciliation. Straightening up. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, and I'll bet one of the sweetest, kindest voices you've ever heard, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I did not condemn you either. Foremost, Christ is perfectly balanced in grace and truth. The goal is reconciliation with creation with this daughter of God. You see, Christ wrote the law. All sin is really against him, right, Mike? David tells us that in Psalms 51 and 4. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are the right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He is the only one that day that was sinless that could have cast the first stone. He is omniscient, and he was witness to her sin. He's the only one who could have testified to condemn her, but he chooses not to condemn her. 
And praise God, he chooses again and again and again to extend grace. Amen? But he loves her. And to leave her without truth is not balanced in grace and truth, and it's not a loving thing to do. Look closely at this next statement. He tells her of her guilt and his vision of future for her all in one statement. Do you catch that? He tells her of her guilt and his vision for her future, all in one statement, go from now on, sin no more. The story is about reconciliation. Sin enters our life, sin enters the world by our own bad decisions and our own bad behavior. Satan wants to accuse us, Satan wants to condemn us, but God wants faithful reconciliation and extends grace to her and to you and I this morning. God gave us the light to follow, to find a way back to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You see, it's always been about reconciliation. From Genesis 3 and 6, when sin entered the world, the plan was put in to action. And it's always been about reconciling you, church, back to God. So I end this series with the same question that I've asked every Sunday. Will this encounter change your life? I want to challenge you this morning to be incredibly self-controlled, to be people who are not easily angered and love not only your brothers and sisters in Christ, but we love our enemies too, to be people who are balanced in grace and truth, who are quick to extend grace and patient and gentle with truth, to be a community that's always trying to reconcile as a priority in our lives with one another. Even before worship, Christ values reconciliation. Be a church that is focused on bringing the lost to Christ so they too might know this reconciliation. I don't know where you are this morning in your walk, in your spiritual walk. I don't know if you need to put Christ on and baptize, be baptized and be reconciled to him and have the spirit dwell in you. Or maybe you've just lost your fervor and your way and you need to come back to Christ. Won't you make today that day? There'll be at least one loving, kind elder at the back door. These empty seats are for you if you'd like to make it public. Anything that we can do to help your spiritual walk. We love you, and we want to go to heaven with you.